I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Dr. Carol Coker-Ross, MD, MPH. We're going to be talking about the do's and don'ts if a loved one expresses suicidal thoughts. We'd all like to think we'd be able to help if one of our friends or family members expressed emotional anguish and suicidal thoughts. But if confronted with that situation, what should we do that would help the most? And what should we avoid doing that might make the situation worse? Dr. Carolyn Coker-Ross, an intergenerational trauma expert and eating disorder treatment specialist, shares with us how to best support our loved ones who are seriously struggling with thoughts of suicide, such as talking openly and not being afraid to ask the hard questions. She's an internationally known author, speaker, expert, and pioneer in intergenerational trauma's effect on one's body, brain, and beliefs. Dr. Ross teaches millions of people about eating disorder treatment and substance abuse or substance use disorder at Psychology Today and is the author of three books, the most recent of which is the Food Addiction Recovery Workbook. Visit her at her online coaching website, The Anchor Program. Uh, Welcome to the show, Dr. Ross. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you here today. Um, we're going to be talking about suicide, a difficult topic, obviously, for many to to, to discuss. But um, recently, um, most of us are aware that Naomi Judd's recent suicide really shocked the nation, shocked everybody. Apparently, the number of college athletes that have taken their lives has so far this year also been staggering. So I... My first question is, so what do we do when we suspect that a loved one, a friend, or even a colleague might be contemplating suicide? Well, I think the most important thing to do is to recognize when someone is depressed, because often that precedes, you know, the actual thoughts about suicide or suicide attempt. I'm sure you know, Catherine, that you know, the rates of suicide attempts have really uh, gone up during the pandemic. And it's, you know, it's it's high in people of Native American descent. It's also high in our veterans. And then you've mentioned a couple of other groups. But if we can get mental health services to people who are struggling with depression, then we may be able to keep them from going all the way towards thinking about suicide or actually having a suicide attempt. So we can do that if we, we can try to do that, get the, getting them the help that they need, recognizing the depression. But you also talk about even before that, let's say we have somebody in our family who we think is depressed. How do we approach them? What do we say? I know you have what you call a lot of the do's and the don'ts. Um, how sure. do we... Yeah. What what are what are those? Well, let's yeah. Yeah. As you said, you know, I work with a lot of people with eating disorders and also addictions, and so depression is a common problem and suicide is very high in those populations as well. So I think one of the biggest myths about depression is that someone who's depressed is just sitting on the couch, you know, really really sad. So first of all, just recognizing some of the warning signs of depression, whether it be inability to perform their usual uh, daily task, whether it be brushing their teeth or, you know, washing clothes, et cetera. 
And people can be sad, but depressed people can also have be hyper and have higher energy and ability to stay still, just, you know, pacing a lot and so on. So if you're able to recognize that someone you care about is experiencing, as you said, some kind of emotional anguish, the first thing to do is just to express your support and concern. Um, I think many people get involved with... Um, reacting when someone is, uh, you know, is sitting on the couch all day or pacing the room and they react to what they're seeing rather than recognizing that this is a sign of something that's more serious. So you can start by just saying, I'm, I see, I noticed that you're sleeping all day or that you're, you haven't taken a shower in days or that you're really agitated and I'm concerned for you. And by, you know, starting that, you open a conversation where perhaps they're able to then talk about what is going on with them. Because I think what happens is oftentimes we feel if I say something and I'm going to encourage that person to think about committing suicide, let's say, if they are depressed or I, or I see, or I see mm-hmm. them as, as being depressed, that if I shouldn't open up the conversation, people, if I don't say anything, nothing's going to happen, which of course is not true. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, totally not true. And I, I think that's it's, but it's very, very common. Like you say, I think people are fearful about suicide. They're afraid to be honest about what they're seeing and that that then may keep people from uh, having the opportunity to talk about it or to get help for it. So I I think starting with that expression of concern and then asking them, like, what do you need for support? Like, what can I do to help? And whether it's be helping them connect with the therapist or a psychiatrist or taking them to the emergency room if they're seriously, you know, considering uh, ending their lives. What about the person or the the family member or whomever who says, "I feel fine. I I, I don't want to. You know, I do, you, I don't want to go. I don't need help. I don't need mm-hmm. help." And then yeah. what do you do? Yeah, I I think then you if you have any other resources, whether you have other family members who have uh, noticed the same kinds of things that you can bring in and say, well, we, you know, we've also been concerned about you and let's just do one thing. Let's just get you an appointment. I think you still have to continue in expressing support and concern and saying, I know you may not want to have help, but you need help. So let's start with just taking one step towards getting you some help. Do you actually, and, and I know the answer to this, but as you say, you really maybe sometimes have to be really open and don't be afraid to ask if they actually plan to kill themselves. You can ask that question. Yeah, and this is the question I think that frightens most people, most family members. Um, But I think it's a question that's important to ask because it really will give you, you know, most the, the most information that you need in order to make a decision about what needs to be done. And if someone says yes to that question, then that's a sign that you can't let them just stay on the couch. You have to really either get them to the emergency room or or if they already have a doctor, call their doctor urgently and get them urgent help. If you don't ask, you just, you'll never know 
whether that's what they were thinking and that it was missed. So I think it's something that we have to really have the courage to ask and then the courage to, you know, get that help for people who are really in that bad place. Because, you know, I think if you've ever been depressed and, you know, certainly I've experienced that and I've also had a family member who committed suicide, um, you know, if you've ever been depressed, firstly, it's really hard to reach out for help because you're just in a dark space and nothing seems like it's going to help and nothing seems like it's worth living for. And if you've had a family member who's committed suicide, you may be terrified that someone else in the family would do the same thing. And you know how painful that is for the survivors and, and, and so on. So we have to really step up to the plate and be willing to take a chance on the people that we care about and ask those hard questions. What's the difference between depression and despair? Or is there a difference? Well, I think uh, the only difference in my mind is that depression is a medical diagnosis and it has, you know, specific criteria for diagnoses. Uh, But people in despair can have many of the exact same symptoms of someone who is, you know, extremely depressed. So we're looking really at the the effect of, of those moods, not so much you know, whether they've been diagnosed or not diagnosed. Uh, But certainly, like I said, if someone is unable to take care of themselves or if they're, you know, they have withdrawn from the family, like they're isolating, they're always making excuses for not coming to family dinners or going out with their friends. Those are the things that are more concerning than whether we can, you know, describe uh, or whether someone has been already diagnosed. So it's really important for people to look at how their lives have been changed as a result of depression uh, or even anxiety, but most certainly depression. And that that can have a a dramatic impact on their lives. And so we're looking at behavior. So we're looking at behavioral changes. Uh, Someone who's, yeah, yeah, someone who's changed. I mean, you might have someone who doesn't uh, have a lot of friends or doesn't go out or is much more of a recluse, but that's their normal behavior. But then if you take somebody, I'm just trying to kind of put a face on it, who is always out there, is very social, and then suddenly becomes someone who won't go out and won't connect with other people, that's a warning sign. Exactly. Changes in the behavior from normal is the most important thing to be aware of. Um, And also changes from a norm. You know, it's normal for uh, most of us to get up and take a shower at least, if not every day, at least enough times that, you know, (laughs) twice a week out in society. In society, but if someone is not taking a shower, their hair is greasy. They, you know, they haven't. Uh, they're, they're wearing the same clothes. They're, they're staying in bed all day. Or if the the other side, which I mentioned, if they're out pacing a lot, um, any of these changes from the norm of what we consider normal behavior is a red flag. Are the people who are at most risk for suicide? Well, 
we've mentioned some um, of the categories, like Native Americans have the highest, Native Americans and Alaska Natives have the highest suicide rates of anyone in the country, I mean, by far. And that is because, um, I it, guess I'm going to, no, okay, that's the group that has the highest risk, but why are Na- Native Americans more prone to committing yeah. suicide? Yeah. That, that's a great, great question. And that, you know, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study looked at the, effect, the, the impact of trauma, and they were able to see that childhood trauma and adversity, whether it be having a parent with depression uh, a family member who's incarcerated, experiencing um, sexual, emotional, or physical abuse or neglect, growing up in poverty with lack of opportunities, those are all things that increase the risk for suicide attempts and suicide completion. So any when you look at Native Americans, you can see not only just individual episodes of childhood adversity and trauma and poverty, but also a historical trauma that was the you know the uh, violent colonization of Native Americans here in the United States and all over the world actually. So we know that that kind of trauma increases the risk for uh, suicide. Any any kind of childhood violence or injury can increase that risk and put certain populations at higher risk. So you're talking about vulnerable populations, and I want to talk about perhaps maybe the populations that we don't consider to be vulnerable, like the ones that I mentioned in the beginning, the football players, the the Mm -hmm. the the celebrities. Uh, That's those what that that's a different. I don't I don't know if they're. I'm I'm saying it's well celebrities. Yeah, 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 celebrities are not. I mean, I don't know uh, Naomi Judd's um, history, so I can't really comment on her past or anything like that. Uh, we All we know is that she struggled with pretty severe depression for a long time. But even the risk for depression has increased with childhood trauma. Like I said, I work with a lot of people with binge eating disorders, substance use disorders, uh, food addiction, and so on. And almost 90 plus percent of them have significant histories of childhood trauma. And they also then have higher rates of depression. So you have to kind of look at the root cause rather than just uh, statistics that show just age or or things like that. And, of course, our veterans have significant histories of trauma. And I, I see a lot of veterans in my practice in San Diego and a lot of active military. And the rates of trauma in the military, is it's really shocking and I feel like we're, you know, we're letting a lot of people down by, because our health system doesn't offer really high-quality mental health care. And there's such a stigma about, you know, getting mental health care. So I, I think that's a big part of the problem that we're facing. And besides that, you know, young people, I think you mentioned, um, you know, I don't know if you know, but ages 10 to 14 have high rates of suicide and 25 to 34. But 10 to 14, that kind of breaks my heart to think that someone that young would be thinking of ending their lives. And in fact, you know, that's what's happening. We're we're seeing a lot of bullying. Um, And again, we have children who've experienced 
domestic violence in the home, substance use in the home, and so many other adversities. When you're talking about the age group 10 to 14, I'm thinking middle school, which is a difficult time. And this is another question about changing bodies, hormones, those kinds of things, mm-hmm. chemical imbalance. I'm making the assumption, I'm asking you the question, does that have something to do with the fact that that's a high-risk category of people who commit suicide? You know, I, I agree with you. Middle school is traditionally a tough time, and but changing bodies is definitely one of the aspects of that. In my work with eating disorders, that's often the time when eating disorders get started. Um, but, you know, I think the real problem is not just that people are going through those changes, but they're being harassed and bullied about those changes. And then you add on top of that social media where... You know, there's just so much online bullying, misinformation, and so on that um, we've never had in the past. You know, like generations before didn't have social media, and they didn't have people constantly talking about, you know, their size, their shape, their face, their family, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we've created kind of hostile places for children instead of nurturing places for children. Even school is no longer a safe place for children. You know, they're not really addressing some of these issues that we see on a daily basis. And not to mention the opioid epidemic, which, you know, there's so many children who've experienced losses from that. And while many teachers have stepped up and become ERSAT's counselors, um, you know, much more, there's a much more um, is needed than that. So I think we're just, we're letting down our kids by not having the kind of support that they need in schools, whether it be school counselors or referrals to child psychiatry or whatever. It's just not as available as it should be. Well, it seems to me it's, as you're describing, it sounds overwhelming. The healthcare system doesn't uh, provide what the children need or the parents need, and then we have all these overriding social and political issues. I, I just read a, uh, a statistic, and I've I've heard this before from uh, a psychiatrist in the CDC that uh, you know I, I have to bring this up. But we're talking about, or I'm talking about gun control, and apparently that more people are killed or commit suicide with their own guns than actually kill the. the then the guns that they possess are used to protect themselves or kill somebody else. Oh, yeah. Coming after. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, when you compare our country to other countries, the death rate with guns uh, is like 5.76. And the nearest country to us is Canada, and they're 1.47. So we're five, you know, we have a hot, five times higher death rate using guns than any other developed nation. In the U.K., it's not even one. It's 0.14 compared to our 5.76. So, you know, I don't want to get into the politics of guns and all of that, but, you know, it's, it's rare that guns actually save people. It's more likely to cause harm either by accidental deaths or by suicide, which uh, suicide by gun is most common in men, not as common in women. And if you're you if if it is a gun that you commit suicide with, 
um, as I understand it, the statistics are that that you it, that you're usually successful. Whereas if you take if you yeah. do ha- drugs and overdose or um, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, you have a chance of perhaps saving someone or that person saving themselves and changing their mind. But if you're shooting yourself with a gun, that's not that's usually that's the uh, end result. Not yeah. usually not recoverable, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when, speaking of overdoses, though. This is the first time in our nation where we've had a hundred thousand overdoses in one year in the in the United States, and so and that's a marked increase from previous years. So you know, I think we have to really be honest. That um, I know it seems overwhelming, but there are certain things we can do that we aren't doing. Like we can do universal screening for um, childhood adversity and trauma, and you know, really offer uh, support for kids who are identified as having, you know, high rates of of, of trauma or uh, other injuries or or experiences of violence. And I think if we could start doing that, you know, and there, for example, I know there are um, pediatric practices that have started doing universal screening uh, using the the adverse childhood experiences uh, study quiz. And if you can identify children when they're very young, as we know, children are very malleable. Their brains are still growing. They're very malleable. And if we can start with those families, and there have been models using, um, you know, teaching parents how to parent children who've experienced adversity. So we, we have all the information we need. We just need to take action. And I think that's where... You know, we're we're not getting uh, as much action as we need. The Centers for Disease Control has certainly made that one of their goals to, um, you know, to provide safe and nurturing environments for children. And I'm sure that over time we'll get there. But I think we need more pediatricians to step up and do screening. We need more teachers and school counselors to offer support and to be educated about trauma in the classroom. And so... You know, these are really not huge steps, but we have to have the, you know, the public willpower to do that. And I think mental illness has such a stigma, just as substance use disorders do, that, you know, it's hard to get people to make a move. Don't you think we have to first admit that we have a problem? I think stepping back before we actually do something about it. And I think there's so much denial for lots of reasons, stigma being one of them. But yeah, if we then once we admit that we have a problem and then we have to make people, which you've just been talking about, more aware of the problem. And I have seen, you're talking about the CDC, there are PSAs, public service announcements on television now, which address the issue about of kids feeling sad, feeling bad, being depressed, mm-hmm. do how to help yeah. them, you know, and, and I've probably within the last year, um, which is a good thing. So, yeah. 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 Those are all things that, you know, it's really important to, to do. And, and like you said, just saying we have a problem. And I think that's hard for Americans to do. We, yeah. we love our denial. You know, we love to make excuses for things rather than saying, this is a problem. You know, we need to fix it. So once we get that admission, uh, I think there's no country in the world that fixes things better than we do. 
but we do have to be honest about it. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. And uh, I, I want to, we have a couple minutes left. So I do want, it's been really a, a great talking to you today. Uh, this is one way of getting the word out, Thank talking you. to people like you. Um, you have an online coaching website, uh, the Anchor Program. Mm-hmm. Uh, quickly, just tell us yeah. what that is. Seriously, in 30 sure. seconds, if it's you a, can. The non non-diet approach for people with food addiction, emotional eating, and binge eating who also have a history of childhood trauma because those two are so linked. And, you know, it's a program that is long-lasting and offers expert advice and support and coaching for people who are ready to get off the diet treadmill and really make peace with food and their bodies and get back to their lives, you know, without stigma. Or, or in spite of stigma. All right. So, Dr. Ross, what about any other websites that we can go to? For, sure. Yeah, for my, yeah. my, uh, so, the Anchor Program website is just anchorprogram.com. I also have a website that's my name, which is carolynrossmd.com. And if anybody's interested in speak, me speaking or doing webinars, that's the website to go to. It's C-A-R-O-L-Y-N-R-O-S-S md.com. Great. Well, Dr. Carolyn Coker Ross, and we've been talking about the do's and don'ts. If a loved one expresses suicidal thoughts, we've been talking about a lot of things today, important issues. Thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Oh, it was wonderful to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 